We were coming up over the pass through Shasta on I-5, making our way back north from Southern California. The praise mix was on. The kids were all kind of doing their own thing in the van, and Cheryl and I were just quietly listening to worship. And as we came up into Southern Oregon, uh, approaching Medford, we entered the most incredible lightning storm. I mean, the rain was pounding. There were times where we were going, you know, 20 miles an hour because you could hardly see anything until the lightning flashed, and then you could see everything. And there were fingers of lightning shooting down, and Cheryl had her iPhone out trying to record the whole thing for posterity. And it was just stunning. And as we drove in, I was struck once again by how awesome our God really is. Not because of the lightning storm. To him, that's nothing. He's got storehouses of that. But a reminder of the power and the majesty of the God that we worship and the God that we serve. And you know, when we pause and we worship Him and we consider His glory, all of our human frailties and failures and goof-ups and even the worst of our sin just kind of goes away. He is God and we are not. And Father, we worship You tonight and we praise You for all of Your glory and Your grandeur that we have not yet begun to fathom, Lord. We understand this much that it will take eternity to begin to grasp how great You are, how great is our God, how, how awesome and mighty and how nothing gets out of Your control. Oh, we get out of control, Father, and we, we do foolish things, but you have all things in hand. Your plans will not be thwarted. Everything that you have laid in and all of your purposes, Father, every single one is going to come to pass, with or without us. I pray, Father, with us. Because I want to be part of what you're doing. I, I want a front row seat. I want to be active, Lord, in, in what you have planned for this world, for what's left of this age, for the age to come, and Father, for all eternity. And I thank You, Lord, that You reveal some of Your heart to us as we worship. Thankful, Lord, that while sometimes we might feel very small, when we know that our Father is as great as You are, our fear goes away. So praise You, Lord. We worship You tonight. And we invite Your Spirit, Father, to teach us from Your Word in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 3. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 12, If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He said, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. What do you mean, Jesus? I mean, no one has a better right to tell you about heavenly things than I do, because I came from there. And that's what Jesus does in His ministry in the Gospels. That's what the Spirit now does through Paul. Tells us heavenly things. And this is a heavenly letter, as we've been talking about. The question for you and the question for me is, will I accept heavenly things, or will I choose instead to run on earthly things? Earthly things can sometimes look heavenly, but they are not always heavenly. Will I run on the teachings of Jesus? 
Will I run on the words of Jesus, on the revelation of Jesus? Well, again, Ephesians is this heavenly letter. Paul soars to heavenly heights. In the writing of this letter, more than any other other of his letters, he goes further in some of the doctrinal explanations than in any other place in the letters that the Spirit has inspired him to send. So, if you get dispirited in this age, if you find ever that you are discouraged in these last days, or even doubtful of your future, I can't think of a better place to be than the book of Ephesians, than the letter to the church at Ephesus. This is the one to digest. The key word, as we've talked about, is eperoniois in the Greek. Eperoniois, which is the heavenlies. It's a term he uses a number of times in the letter. Heavenlies or the heavenly places. And with the exception of Jesus saying it to Nicodemus, as we already quoted, Paul is the only one who uses it in the New Testament Scriptures. And so we've been talking about chapters 1 through 3. We've been talking about the heights of the heavenlies. And Paul truly bringing heavenly things to bear, to be revealed before us for our understanding. He'll give us more of that tonight. Chapters 1 through 3. And then 4 and 5, we will get into the walk of the worthy, which comes after the heights of the heavenly. Once the revelation is given, then the worthiness, the the ability to walk follows. And then finally in chapter 6, we'll deal with the fight of the faithful. Ephesians chapter 3, tonight, I'll give it to you in two parts. Part 1, a heavenly gospel. Part two, a heavenly prayer. Now, from the outset, Paul intends to be praying. This is on his mind. As he begins in verse one, he says, For this reason I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and then some of your Bibles might see a line there. And if you skip on down, you will find that it picks up again in verse 14, where he starts up again, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. What's happening here? Paul begins chapter 3 with the intention of praying, and he gets sidetracked by his own amazement of heavenly things. And then in verse 14, he comes back around and says, okay, okay, so, so for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father. So he's intending to pray, but everything between verse 1 and, and verse 14 just erupts out of Paul. It is a heavenly gospel. It's like he can't contain himself. He's got to pause one more moment before he prays to express what is bursting from his heart. And he says then in verse 2, If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you. Stewardship. Some translations say the administration of God's grace or the King James Version says the dispensation of God's grace. Oikonomia is the Greek word dispensation. What is a dispensation? We've talked about this. It's one of those kind of big theological sounding words. It's not that big a deal. It just speaks of an age. A dispensation is an age in the history of the world in which God deals with mankind a certain way. Right now, we are in the dispensation of grace. Are you a dispensationalist, Rick? I'm a Bible believer. But we are in an age right now where God is exclusively dealing with the issue of grace. This is not the age of law. This is not the age of the patriarchs or the Adamic age or the Abrahamic age or any of that. This is the age of grace, the church age. And from the founding of the church forward, truly from the cross forward, grace has been poured out. And this is where we live. And this is just emanating from Paul as he continues to think these things through. Remember, he is the apostle of grace. He speaks of grace more than anybody else. 
And so in this dispensation, this age defined by how God interacts with people, remember grace. Grace is what this age is about. Practically, grace ought to be what we're about to. If in fact we are saved by grace, we are children of the grace of God, we are believers who understand that He gives us grace, then ought we not to give grace to one another? Isn't that how we're we're to live? With grace. We're in the age of grace, let's be people of grace. So that's where Paul's going. And declaring this grace was Paul's responsibility. Declaring the dispensation of His grace. Paul's responsibility to bring that. And what happened is it resulted in bitter opposition. Grace? Kindness? God's love? Yeah. Bitter opposition from the Jews. Because the Jewish people were coming out of the age of law were based on law, believed law to be their only hope, their only salvation, even though by this point it had been proven that no one could keep the law. But coming from that position, here comes this Paul, who was a Jew among Jews, but now he's preaching this gospel of grace, and the Jewish people in the first century who knew Paul, who saw him coming into their towns and villages, hated him for it, drove him out of town for it, stoned him for it, called him a heretic, And it was this bitter opposition that landed Paul under house arrest in Rome. Now before we can even go any further in Ephesians 3, back up with me. In fact, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. Acts 21. Paul had just returned to Jerusalem from his third missionary journey. And upon arriving in Jerusalem, he met the brothers, he talked with them, and they were a bit concerned about this doctrine of grace that Paul was promulgating among the Asian churches. They didn't disagree with it. They couldn't. Much of it had been revealed to them. But they knew their Jewish brothers, especially the the Jewish Christians, were a little unnerved by this grace-centered guy. And they also knew that the other Jews in Jerusalem, the non-Christian Jews, were bitterly opposed. And they wanted to keep the peace. So they said, hey, Paul, look, do us a favor. We got some guys, four men, who are under a vow. And they have some purification rituals they need to go through in the temple. They have seven days of purification. If you go through that with them, if you pay for their purification, it will mollify the Jewish people in Jerusalem. They'll see that, okay, he is still walking in the law so we can trust him. And they they thought this was a good plan. And so Paul begins to do this. The problem is... The problem is that concessions just make people more hungry. Kind of like at a baseball game. Have you noticed that? Football game, you go to the concessions, you buy your food, you go back to your seat, you eat it all, and five minutes later you're still watching the game and going, I need some popcorn. I need more. Get this. Making concessions to the enemy in your life will cause the enemy to be more hungry for you. Giving in to the enemy. Just a little bit. I just, I just, I just want to get Satan off my back. You know, I just want the devil out of my way, so I'm just going to give in. We're just going to say it's cool, it's fine, no big deal, we'll just look the other way, because that's easier. Guess what? It's going to get harder. Because making concessions always makes it worse. And we see this with Paul. So he comes back to Jerusalem, he starts making this concession, he's going through the purification, and what happens? Acts chapter 21, verse 27 says, When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him. 
and crying out. They said, men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law in this and this place against the temple, they're saying. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Violation! And so the very thing Paul's trying to do to appease ends up completely working against him. They go berserk against Paul. They're about to tear him limb from limb. The Roman garrison is called down because of this uproar, this riot. It's like a Trump rally, really. And, and they're all upset. And here come the Romans, and they pull Paul out, and they start to take him to the barracks just to protect his life. And as they're going up the stairs, Paul says, let me talk to him. And so they let him talk to the people. And Paul does. He begins to share. And what's interesting is they listen intentively or attentively. They, they pay close. They're quiet. In fact, for all of Acts 22, they're listening to Paul give his testimony. Even his testimony on the Damascus Road. They don't interrupt him when he says, I was on the Damascus Road and I saw Jesus. The Messiah began to speak to me on the road. They weren't arguing with him at this point, which I find interesting. They're listening. They're giving him a chance to speak what happened until he says one thing that makes him go absolutely berserk. Look down in chapter 22, verse 21. Speaking of Jesus, Acts 22, 21 Paul says, and he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. They listened to him up to this statement. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust up into the air, well, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging. This is intelligent Roman design. Let's figure out the truth. We'll just rip his back open until he tells us what's really going on. So that they might find out a reason why they were shouting against him. And I'll tell you what, if it wasn't wasn't the gospel that so offended. It was the gospel to the Gentiles. That's when they went nuts. That's when they were angry. When grace was being offered beyond the borders of Judaism... And so, again, the Romans bring Paul into the barracks. They're going to scourge him. They're going to try and figure this out until the centurion discovers Paul is a Roman citizen. And it was against the law to scourge a Roman citizen without any factual evidence or reason behind it. Oh, they could scourge anybody else, but if you were a citizen of Rome, you were protected. And so the story continues. Paul was set free. But they kept him in the barracks that night. They wanted to protect him. They knew if he went outside that night, he'd be dead. So they kept him there. The next morning, they wanted to find out more, so they call in the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. They bring Paul before the Sanhedrin. Another uproar ensues. Paul wisely pits the Pharisees against the Sadducees, saying, I'm in trouble because I was talking about the resurrection, which the Pharisees believed and the Sadducees did not. So they all start arguing, because you know if you get two Jewish people in the same room, you get four opinions. That's kind of how that works. So they're all arguing, and they have to pull Paul out again. They decide we've got to do something with Paul. And so from Jerusalem, they take him up to Antipatris and then out to Caesarea Maritima under heavy, heavy guard. And Paul stays there for two years in prison. Hasn't done anything wrong. 
He's a Roman citizen. They bring in Governor Felix, and for two years Felix listens to Paul from time to time speak. Paul is still just stuck there in Caesarea. I wonder what Paul was thinking at the time. This is what I get for grace? Have you ever thought that? I extended kindness and my hand was slapped. I'm done. No more kindness for Deb because every time... No, I'm kidding, Deb. No more kindness. No more niceties. Because I just get hurt when I extend grace. He's in prison. Two years this is going on. Finally, they replace Governor Felix. Well, good. Maybe another governor is going to help him. And so in comes a real ham, Porcius Festus, who I told you before his name means, I kid you not, pig festival. So Porky is talking to Paul now. He's meeting with him. And here's the point. Paul does something incredibly unexpected. He appeals to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. Acts 25.12, when Festus had conferred with his, his counsel, he answered, you have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. And then later on, King Agrippa is brought in before Paul. And Agrippa says to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Now here's the question, and the reason for all this background. Why would any Jew in their right mind rather be under Roman jurisdiction than Jewish jurisdiction? Why would you put yourself in the hands of Rome rather than the hands of your Jewish brethren. Now, I know some of you are saying, because his Jewish brethren want to tear him up. I I get that, but, but hold on a second. The Jews didn't have the power of life or death. When there were stonings, it was against the law. Rome did have that power. And Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. Why'd you do it, Paul? Why did you appeal to Caesar? Because something else happened. While Paul was in Jerusalem, Before he was sent to Caesarea, he had another meeting. Acts chapter 23, verse 11. On the night immediately following, that's he's in the barracks, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause in or at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. And I submit to you that Paul was completely intentional when he appealed to Caesar. I gotta go to Rome. Why? Because Jesus told me to. Because he said that's where I'm supposed to be. And so to Rome, Paul would go. And he had to go to Rome back in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1 to become the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Note this, for the sake of you Gentiles. It was for the sake of the Gentiles Paul was in prison. His willingness to do whatever needed to happen so that he could preach the gospel to the Gentiles, even if that meant being taken in chains to Rome, which is exactly what took place. And you know, Paul, as a prisoner, preached more powerfully from prison than he ever did in person. Well, how do you know that? 2,000 years is how I know that. Paul could not possibly have known that his letter to the church at Ephesus would survive to tonight. And yet he wrote the letter. And yet he followed the lead, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and as a prisoner had greater impact on the church than any time when he was free. Oh, the wisdom of God. And the plans of the Lord. I mean, you ever look at what God's doing in your life and go, Lord, this is not right. 
This cannot be your will. I mean, for me to be in prison? Come on. Listen, Jesus said wisdom is vindicated by all her children. That is the outcome of wisdom ultimately is always seen for what it is. Luke 7.35 Wisdom is vindicated. He knew what Paul did not know. He knew the power and the placement of the Gospel. He knew from prison these letters would come to us. He knew they would be inspired. He knew they would be written. And so Paul just obeyed. And the question for you and me tonight is can we accept His plan for the outworking of heavenly things? Can you accept His plan for your life even if it doesn't look like you want it to look? Even if it's not the life that you planned for or or you set yourself up for or you expected. Life is rarely what we expect anyway. But can we humbly say, God, this is your life. You use it as you see fit for the Gospel and for the Kingdom. And by the way, for anyone who would question the integrity of the Apostle Paul, and many have, sadly, as a prisoner for the Gospel, his entire ministry was others-centered. And I I pray that ours might be as well. So in Ephesians 3, in verse 3, his mind full of this heavenly Gospel, Paul now goes off. He can't help himself. It's another pleonastic statement. Remember we looked at one in in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, a long run-on sentence of Paul with no stopping. Well, this is the same thing where his scribe is just struggling to keep up. Verse 3, Paul says, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in my brief. Some say the brief that he wrote before was Galatians or 1st and 2nd Corinthians or Romans or Colossians, one of the other letters of Paul. Maybe that's what he's referring to. I don't think so. I think he's referring to some other things that he had already written that we don't have. There were a lot of letters that Paul wrote that we don't have anymore. We have, but the Holy Spirit determined we should yet have. How do you know that, Rick? Well, a couple of ways. Number one, we still have it. And number two, it is completely uh, integral in Scripture. That is, it doesn't contradict anywhere the Word of God. It is the Word of God and teaches us as such. So this long sentence, and he says, I got this, this mysterion, we've talked about the mysterion, the mystery. I got this by revelation. Now listen, because this is important doctrine. And I am, I'll say this, I'm teaching this authoritatively by the Scriptures. This is doctrine. Revelation in the Bible speaks of that which is already written. When we talk about getting revelation from the Lord, the revelation is understanding of the things of God's Word. The revelation of Jesus. You're not going to get a revelation beyond the Scripture. Now, you might get a personal understanding about something, or you might get an indication from the Lord to do something or, or to go somewhere. This church exists because I heard the Lord. I mean, I had a leading of the Lord that was very clear to me that we were to start a Bible teaching church. I mean, there was, there was no question in my mind about that. But when we're talking about revelation, and Paul talks a lot about it, he is talking here. He says, I received by, let's see, where is it, verse 
3, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. The mystery that was revealed to Paul was a revelation of what was already written in the Hebrew Scriptures. It is a revelation of prophecy that he's saying has suddenly now been revealed. Now we see, now we know, now it is clear to us. He's talking about Moses and the Psalms and all the prophets. And that's the revelation. And when we speak, again, of revelation, we are talking about the Word of God revealed. The Word of God made clear. That is understanding and walking the ancient paths. Some of you have heard that John Corson-ism. You know, if it's new, it isn't true. And if it isn't true, it isn't new. You know, it's... It's the ancient paths. Jeremiah chapter 6 verse 16 thus says the Lord, Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. And he's talking about his word and he's talking about the ancient truths that were laid down early on. But then he says this, But they said, We will not walk in it. That was Judah's problem. In 586 B.C. when Jerusalem was destroyed, they would not walk the ancient paths. And little has changed. We still today live in an age of ear-tickling, experiential, subjective, personal stories replacing biblical truth. We need the Word of God. I can tell you stories all day long about driving into southern Oregon and lightning flashing and how impressive that was. That's not going to change your life. This word will. The scriptures will. This will move you. It will refresh you. It will build you up. It will strengthen you. It will wash you with the water and the word, as Paul will tell us in Ephesians chapter 5. This word revealed to us understanding the ancient paths. People talk about Revelation sometimes, and I'm laboring on this a bit, but people talk about Revelation as if it was a new thing. Oh, I got a new revelation from the Lord. It's not new with Jesus. Nothing is. He he is known. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's not new with him, but it is fresh. What do you mean? Well, revelation to me, every time I understand something or something is revealed to me that I did not know before as I'm studying through the word and I'm praying, it's always fresh. It is never stale. But it's not new. It is old and fresh. We can't do that. The best of our refrigerators don't have that capability. (laughs) This morning, I I was in the kitchen and I grabbed a a cup of tea and I'm looking out the window and Cheryl's menagerie is there before me. I've described this to you. She's got, you know, hummingbird feeders and bird feeders and corn for the squirrels. And it's all right out our front window. And I'm watching and a goldfinch came in. Flying around. First one I've seen of the new spring. Fresh. I love Washington in the springtime, especially on sunny days. Just beautiful. And all the animals are returning. And I'm watching this whole thing. And it was fresh and new and as old as time. You know, because spring has been coming every year since God created this world. But it's fresh. Same idea with Revelation. In the Luke 16 account where Jesus is talking about sharing the story of the rich man and Lazarus, he quotes Abraham. And he quotes him saying, Luke 16.31, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. 
So even if we have this grand and glorious experience, which by the way happened with Jesus, even for that, if they won't listen to this word, if they won't walk the ancient paths, they're not going to get it. It will fall away. It will wash out. Matthew 10.26, Jesus said, There is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What is He talking about? He's talking about His Word. He's talking about the truth. He's talking about the revelation of Jesus Christ in this world to all people. That that's the design of God. So, all that to say, when we pray for revelation, it is about the unveiling of Jesus And it is about the understanding of the Word of God. Verse 4. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Interesting. This is Paul's second time referring to the holy apostles and the prophets. I had always made a wrong assumption. Perhaps you have too. If you look back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul talks about the holy apostles and the prophets. He says that, uh, verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens, you're fellow citizens with the saints, you're of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the corner. Now, I used to read that and and think about anytime I saw the apostles and the prophets, I always thought the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles. Now, I hinted at this a couple of weeks back, but when he's talking about the holy apostles and prophets, he's talking about current holy apostles and prophets. He's not talking about the Old Testament prophets here. He's talking about the New Testament prophets. How do we know? Because he says, as it has now been revealed to his apostles and prophets. So it's now being revealed to the current prophets, prophets like, I remember a guy named Agabus. Remember him? In the latter chapters of Acts, comes to Paul and wraps a belt around him and says, you're going to be chained up. You know, he prophesies to him. He tells him this. There were modern prophets there, contemporaries of Paul, who were speaking these truths, who were bringing these realities. Paul himself was one of them. Both an apostle and a prophet. Bringing the truths of God, the revelation of this mystery. Remember, while the Hebrew prophets, they spoke of Christ, they didn't have the full revelation. They said things they did not understand. Didn't mean they weren't spiritual men, but Daniel was prophesying stuff and asking the Lord, when is this going to take place? What is this of which I'm writing? (laughs) What does this mean? And remember God said to Daniel, seal it up. It's not for now. Don't worry about it. I'm giving... Why are you giving it to me? Well, it's for later. But you seal it up. It's all good. So the Old Testament prophets, Peter said, as to our salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, that is the Hebrew prophets, made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So they prophesied, but they didn't know what they were saying a lot of the time. These prophets now get it. These prophets, including Paul and the other apostles and others among them, Philip for one, his his daughters who were prophets, they understood. 
And so they were now prophesying the revelation of the mystery of God, which is right here, and which had been spoken for generation after generation, but now has been revealed to the holy prophets, to the holy apostles, in this dispensation. Are you with me? In this age. But it raises a question. Are there still apostles and prophets today? Good question. Great question. And we're going to talk about it a week from Sunday. <laughs> i got to make you wait because it's too big. It's too big a question. It's not just a yes-no. So we're going to get there and deal with this about apostles and prophets then and now. And is there, are there, and if so, then what's the difference? Is there any? We'll get there. I don't want to rush it. Let's, let's, let's continue to build the case as we go through Ephesians here. So verse 6, moving on. Verse 6, Paul says, to be specific. Now remember, he's in a run-on sentence. We're just stopping because we have to, you know, to understand. To be specific, that the Gentiles, here's the mystery revealed, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Messiah Jesus through the Gospel. There it is. The revelation of the mystery. Verse 7, he says, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of His power. This is my whole thing. Is to get this message out that it's not just Jews to whom Messiah came. It's anyone who will accept the message of God's grace. Wow! It's huge! Paul says, this is my deal. This is my message. And he says, three things have happened here. He says, the message is that Gentiles are fellow heirs. Fellow heirs. Now we've talked about this. In fact, if you look back in chapter 1, verse 13, Paul already wrote, In Him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's possession to the praise of His glory. So we have this inheritance. And it's not just the Jewish people anymore. Messiah is for everyone. We're fellow heirs. I love the, the word picture that Paul paints in Romans 11 of the olive tree. A picture we've gone back to many times. You know the phrase, grafted in. Paul says in Romans 11.24, For if you were cut off from uh, what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to your nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches, Israel be grafted back into their own olive tree. So we've been grafted in. I love the grafting picture. Because the beauty is this. Once a grafting, if you graft a bit of a tree, a branch, a limb of a tree, if you graft it into another tree, ultimately what happens is as that tree grows, you no longer can see the graft. It's just part of the tree. You can look for it. You might even remember where it was a year, two, three ago. But as you look, suddenly the graft itself, the the wound around the graft, if you will, the lines, they disappear. And you know what you become? Part of the tree. No different from any branch that was already there. And that's what we are with Israel. We are fellow heirs. It is a beautiful picture of, of absolute divine assimilation into The rich root of the olive tree, that root being Jesus Himself. So we're fellow heirs 
with Israel. We're fellow members, he says secondly, of the body. Even more intimate now, the body he's talking about is Christ. We are fellow members of the body of Messiah, encompassing the unity and the fellowship of all His people, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female. Remember Galatians chapter 3 talking about that? We're part of this thing. We're grafted into the tree. We're fully assimilated into the inheritance. We are full members of the body. And we'll get into even more of what that means on Sunday morning. But Jesus prayed this. Hear His words. Mark them. John 17.20 I do not ask on behalf of these alone, that is, His disciples in the first century, but for those who also believe in Me through their word. So now He's praying for you. And He says that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The prayer of Jesus Christ for His church is unity. Oneness. And it goes to the very heart of our existence as a fellowship gang. We not, may, not, may not fully understand unity. But we must never undervalue unity in this church. We must always be willing to say, even though we come at things from different perspectives, different opinions, different backgrounds, we unify around the cross of Christ and on the Word of God. Moved then by the power of His Spirit. It's actually very simple. One of the things I love about the Bridge Fellowship is how disparate we really are. And you might not even realize this because we tend to kind of run with those that we know and we're comfortable with. But I know, I see all the time, I get different opinions. You wouldn't believe that you're sitting by someone who is completely 180 degrees from where you are spiritually. But you're just singing songs together thinking, well, he he believes what I believe. No, he doesn't. (laughs) But I'll tell you what he does believe. Jesus Christ died for his sins. I'll tell you what she does believe. This is God's infallible word. Now see, I have come to believe in my life, coming from a more narrow-minded perspective, I have come to believe in my life that unifying brothers and sisters in Christ who may have completely different backgrounds is a glory to God in this world. And it is key to the heart of this fellowship and to the heart of the church. So we're fellow heirs, we're fellow members of the body, and, I love this, we're fellow partakers of the promise. Fellow partakers, what does that mean? Are your plates ready? Line up! You know, it's potluck time. We are fellow partakers. We're not just the wait staff who has prepared the meal and laid it all out and we have to stand back and watch others eat. We partake. And not of just any food. We are partakers of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Partakers together of the, the promise. We're participants in the feast. We get to feed on these things, eat these things. We get to fill our plates, chow down, take in Jesus, take in each other, and and be encouraged and built up in this most holy faith. And that is the mystery of the promise revealed. That's what Paul's describing here in these, these three things. Fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise. Partaking of Jesus. In fact, he has already said, Colossians 1.27, God willed, 
to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, and here it is again, Christ in you, the hope of glory. How does Christ get in me? I need to feed on Him. I need to digest the character and nature and person of Jesus Christ. I take Him in by His Word. I receive Him by His Spirit. I come to know Him walking in an actual, authentic relationship with Him. Growing together in the Lord. Hebrews 3.14 says, We have become partakers of Christ. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm to the end, you might say, well, how do we hold fast? Keep partaking. How do I avoid becoming weak as a follower of Jesus? Keep partaking. Because when you stop eating, you get weak. Keep partaking. Jake asked me earlier today, he's going to be coming around and... and talking to parents and I'm really excited about the direction that he's sensing God leading with our student ministry but wanting to involve parents and hear from parents and engage parents because you guys are more the ones who are actually discipling and raising our kids Jake isn't right praise the Lord huh Cam that all he has to deal with is his two and he's barely hanging on there I'm kidding but he came to me and said what as a parent Rick what do you think and we started talking and I'll tell you what came to me and I haven't even told him this What I expect as a parent, not as senior pastor, but as a parent in this fellowship, what I expect out of our youth pastor is that he does four things with our kids, and I expect all four to be done. Are you ready? The apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. And if he does that, I am satisfied as a parent. Because that's what the first century church did. What is it? It's partaking. They partook of the apostles' teaching, this word. They broke bread together. That is, they came to the table of the Lord together and they partook of the Lord Jesus. And then they prayed together and they fellowshiped together and it was that simple. And I don't read of one big program in the book of Acts. Not a single one. I just read of them being the church together. Now, at this point, the gospel takes a heavenly turn. Paul's laying all this stuff out, gospel to the Gentiles, proclaiming it, I'm a prisoner because of this gospel, goes into all of that. And then in verse 8, verse 8, Paul says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Now, quick pause. He says, to me, the very least of all the saints. That's maturity right there. The more mature a brother or sister in Christ, the more you feel like you're the least important in the room. And the more everybody else rises in importance around you. The more you want to minister to them, the less your needs matter and the more their needs matter. As we mature in the Lord, that's the way it is. And Paul says, I'm the least of the saints. Ironically, in 1 Timothy 1.15, he called himself the foremost of what? Sinners. I'm the least of the saints and I'm the foremost of all sinners. And he's the one that wrote this down. (laughs) He's the messenger. Only God does something like that. It's marvelous. And Paul is not an arrogant man. You know, he may have been once. In fact, I think he kind of described himself as arrogant once. A Jew among Jews, born of the tribe of Benjamin, you know, circumcised on the the seventh or eighth day and did everything right, you know, and... 
But now, that, that's rubbish. And this non-arrogant man, this very least of all the saints, man, he's learned something. And the truth is, the more you, the more I grasp the revelation of God's grace in Jesus Christ, the more we will be humbled. And the more we'll realize how little we have except for His grace. Charles Spurgeon said, While Paul was thus thankful for his office, his success in it greatly humbled him. The fuller a vessel becomes, (laughs) the deeper it sinks in water. A plenitude of grace is pure for any pride. And so Paul writes of this revelation of grace, verse 9. And to bring to light, now what, Paul? What is the administration? Oh, that's that word oikonomia. What is the dispensation of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things? Why? Why was it hidden? Why is it now revealed so that? Verse 10, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities, that is the powers and principalities in the heavenlies. In the heavenly places. Now, when we opened up Ephesians, I already pointed you to this verse, but every single time I read it, it just blows my mind. I mean, it literally, I I just, I almost feel like I can't breathe. Like I'm drowning in a truth that is so huge that it goes so far beyond all the little church squabbles that happen from time to time. It's just amazing how quickly we get caught up into earthly, worldly stuff. Instead of heavenly things. And this heavenly reality is the revelation that God's wisdom and God's grace, which is all to God's glory, it's it's projected on the widescreen of history. For who to watch? The powers and the principalities in the heavenly places. What God's doing here with you and with me and with the church over 2,000 years is revealing to angels and other spiritual beings what grace looks like. You know why? Because they don't know. Angels were created to worship God. Angels know one of two things. Worship God or rebel, and then become demons. Those are the two options for angels. They don't understand grace. Jesus didn't die on the cross for those fallen angels, so they don't get it. And the powers and the principalities and all those uh, who are in the spiritual places, those beings, some of which we may not even be aware at this point, don't get grace. And so Paul, uh, God wanted them to understand the depths of His nature. How does He do that? He reveals it through the church. Unbelievable. And angels are watching you. When we worship... You know why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that a woman ought to have her head covered for the angels? It's a weird statement. Kind of freaks people out. Why is that? Because the angels are watching. And and there's there's an orderliness to the angels. And there's even a a sense of, of divine grandeur and authority among the angels. And God is teaching them and they are watching closely. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 12. It says, it was revealed to them, that is the Hebrew prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And he adds this tag, things into which angels long to look. 
We talk about grace like no big deal. You know, the grace of God that saved you. Angels are going, I don't get it. Angels are looking at Glenn. And they're going... I don't get grace. Angels are looking at me and they're saying, why is anybody showing up? They see everything going on in our lives and then they see us coming here to worship. Angels are watching and they're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, Lord, you're saying they can just come to you anytime they want? If I did that, I'd be like... But they have this freedom to approach you and you even said they could do so in boldness? Grace, grace. i got to get this grace stuff. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21. Paul writes to Tim, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus and of His chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Why, Paul? Because, Timothy, the angels are watching. And what you do as the church is reflecting on the grace of God as they are watching. It's huge, my friends. This is why I keep saying the heavenly-minded Christian is the one who's got their head on right. To be heavenly-minded, it pulls us out of the silliness of earthly things and the fears and frets and worries that, that tag us every day in our lives. It pulls us out of that and it helps us realize something big is going on here. You know, something I hear from time to time, and I've heard it for 13 years here at the bridge, and I'll just say it, and if you happen to have said this to me, don't feel bad, because I just hear it over and over. In fact, I've said it many times. Here it is. I think we're on the verge of something big. We're on the verge of something big. And then a year goes by, and you're like, what happened to the big thing that we were on the verge of? Oh, we're on the verge of... You know what? We are on the verge of something big. It's called the rapture of the church. That's going to be big. Until then, let's just be faithful. Because the angels are watching. Luke 15, 12, Jesus said, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Why? Because they don't understand grace. And when grace happens, there were baptisms. I I heard there were four baptisms while I was gone. I'm going away more often. (laughs) But that was awesome. They're watching this happen. And they're saying, look at that! Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! That that person now got saved. How is this happening? Grace. Oh, that's grace. Oh, that's what grace looks like. And with every believer across 2,000 years, you got angels with their little notebooks out going, there's another one. Grace. Okay, yeah. Really ugly and now beautiful. That's grace. (laughs) Isn't it marvelous? And that's what we are involved in here, my friends. That's the big picture. That's, you know, the veil pulled back and we look and say, oh, it really was never about the British Christian Fellowship. It never really was about the churches in Oak Harbor. It wasn't about how the church fought back against the administrations in Washington and and stood for... No. It's about revealing God's grace to God's glory. That's what we're in. Man, how can anyone claim that the gospel is a man-centered thing after reading that? The gospel is not man-centered. It is God-glorifying. It is to glorify God in the heavenlies. (laughs) Verse 11. 
And Paul says this was in accordance. He's still in the same sentence, by the way. He hasn't stopped. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. Remember, the angels are going, how can they come to Him? They just get to come to Him. It's grace. Write it down. It's grace. Therefore, Paul says, I ask you not to lose heart. Now, hang on a second. He's talking about this confident access. He's explaining to to us to understand that, that angels understand God's holiness. They get His grandeur, but they are still learning about His grace. And that's the eternal purpose. That's why I'm saying it's bigger than we thought. That the purposes of God started long before this world was created. And the purposes of God will continue long after this world is toast. It's an eternal thing. An eternal purpose. And then, Paul says, in this lesson for all eternity, he says in verse 13, Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. I thought this was for God's glory. And all of a sudden, Paul is saying they are for your glory. Make the clear distinction. Grace. And the dispensation of grace is all for God's glory. What is for our glory? Paul says in verse 13, tribulations. Now he's talking about his tribulations, his trials, what he has to go through. This is, this is for your glory. In other words, this is so that you, by coming to know Jesus, will be glorified in Him on that day. But there's a truth here that we need to understand. Paul is saying to the Gentile churches, my imprisonment, it's all worth it. It is all worth it. My pain, worth it. My trials, my tribulations, my personal issues, worth it. I think Paul would do it all over again. Because it's worth it. He is the one who wrote Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He said in 2 Corinthians 4.17, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension. So if you've had a bad day, praise the Lord. So if you're struggling through some trial, some tribulation, some, some issue, don't let it drag you down. Man, praise God. Because through those tribulations, as we follow Him, as we trust in Him, as grace is, is worked out in our lives, the angels are amazed, the world gets saved. It's all good. And that is the heavenly gospel. But now Paul gets into part two. What time is it? How are we doing? It's just part two. The heavenly prayer. And he picks up on his intent back from verse 1. Now in verse 14 he says, For this reason, (laughs) I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And that really bugs me. Or it did. (coughs) Because you know what? Every family on earth does not derive its name from God. What do you mean, Rick? I mean, John chapter 1, verse 12 tells us very clearly that those who believe on His name become children of God. That we are born again into the family of God. Before that, we're created by God. But those who say, oh, we're all God's children. No, we're not. 
We're not. You're not God's child until you're born again. Prior to that, you're God's creation. But until you've accepted Jesus and you become born again, you are not God's child and therefore not part of the family, fellow heirs, right? fellow partakers, fellow members of the body. Until I accept Jesus, I'm not that. So what is Paul saying when he says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Well, he's not talking about every family on earth. In fact, the words are very clear here in the Greek. I bow my knees before the pater, father is the Greek word, pater, from whom every patria, every fatherhood in heaven and on earth derives its name. And that's a better translation. It's just confusing. I bow my knees before the Father from whom every fatherhood in heaven and on earth derives His name. What is He saying? Paul is saying, I am praying to the Father, the one Father who is the archetype of all fatherhood. He's the original Father. He's the perfect Father. He's the Father from whom every Father in heaven and on earth derives our name. I'm a Father, little f. I'm a father of David and Naomi and Anna Marie, Hayden, Hannah. Well, not Hannah because she left and cleft. Corey, I'm a father to them. Let me clarify to you all, I'm not a father in this fellowship. That's not my name. That's not my title. I'll explain that in just a second. But this father archetype Paul is saying, God is it. He is the Father, capital F, of fathers, little f. And we are simply patterned after Him in kind of, it's a picture here of the glory and grandeur of our one Father. And by the way, this implies that there are heavenly family groupings as well as earthly. Just throw that weird thought out for you. Because he says, I pray to the Father of the fatherhood of every family in, or of every fatherhood in heaven and on earth. So there's other fatherhoods in heaven that are patterned after God. Where are you going with this, Rick? Nowhere. I'm just telling you what I read. That there are families in heaven. There's not marriage. We know that in the resurrection, Jesus said, but there are families in heaven. So there, there, there's organization. Let's leave it at that. There's organization within the heavenly places. So, God is Father. And then there are other fathers who are kind of patterned after the leadership and the authority and the position of God, but imperfectly so. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 21 tells us that Christ is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus is equal to the Father. So Paul is calling out this grand authority of God to whom he prays. This is huge because he is praying to the only one who has the authority to answer this prayer. Which means for us, there is no one else who has authority to answer our prayers. The saints cannot answer my prayers for me. Mary was a good woman, but cannot answer my prayers, nor can Joseph, nor can the apostles. Nor can the prophets, only the Father. Okay? And so that's who Paul is praying to. The old rabbis, by the way, use the phrase the family above when referring to angels. The family above. 
Families below on earth, families above in heaven, family units, however that looks, I don't exactly know. That's as far as I'll push that one. But God is Father. Now, with respect to my Catholic friends, I am not a father for the Bridge Christian Fellowship. Some of you are like, yeah, we know Rick. (laughs) Others are like, no, this family already has a father and his name is God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit fathers this family. And we do not need another. We don't need another go-between. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 8, Do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. We've got to be very careful in calling our shepherds leaders. Now there is authority given in the Scriptures to leadership in a church fellowship. There is organization and structure to it. I I get that. But we need to understand we have one leader and that is Jesus. And we have one rabbi and that is Jesus. We have one father. Again, Jesus. Jesus said, do not be called leaders for your one leader is Christ and the greatest among you shall be what? Servant. Servant. So I bow my knee, he says, to the Father. One last thing on this. When... When Paul says this, and we know we have this perfect archetype of the Eternal Father. Remember, Jesus was called Everlasting Father. But you've had a horrible experience with a father. I've talked with many people whose biggest struggle in knowing and loving God is their own relationship with their own earthly father. Little f. Graded f. A father who has failed you, a father who was absent, a father who maybe you never knew, or a father who was abusive. And that's because, though we had this perfect archetype of a father, sin entered the world, and all of us fathers have blown it. And there's not a man sitting here as a father who hasn't blown it. Don't think that you got by. You blew it. Give your kids time, they'll tell you. And we all have. And I've told my own kids, the only manual I have was the scriptures, and I was trying everything to read those to understand how to handle you guys. You know, little demons. No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) Strike that from the recording. Um, I bow my knees to the Father, Paul says, listen, if you have experienced a bad relationship or no relationship with a father, listen again to John 1.12. As many as received him... To them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God, the Father. He's your Father. And He's perfect. He'll never abuse you. He will never let you down. He will not be absent. He is your Father. So Paul prays this heavenly prayer for the church in the name of the Father, and here it is, verse 16, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled up 
to all the fullness of God. Ponder that. Pray that. In fact, your homework this week is pray that prayer. Partake of it. Pursue it. Now you might read that saying, but what does it mean to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man? What does that really mean? It's very simple. Colossians 1.27 It's Christ in you. The hope of glory. That when Jesus says, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. That's the Father who says, I'm not going to be living somewhere else. Where are you going to live, Lord? Right here. Right here. I am immediate and I am present. But you're so quiet sometimes, Father. Yeah, because He's a good listener. He allows us to rail and freak out and squawk and do all the stuff that we do. And He patiently listens and He says, it's alright. It's alright. He's right here. Okay, but how can I know something that surpasses knowledge? Isn't that oxymoronical? That you may know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Well, if it surpasses knowledge, how can I know? And furthermore, let's just push this further. How in the world am I supposed to be filled up to all the fullness of an eternal God? It sounds like I would burst in an instant. There's one key, and it is to be rooted and grounded in love. Love. Look at it again. To be rooted and grounded, verse 17, in love. And to know the love of Christ. Which surpasses knowledge. What does that mean? It simply means His love is experienced. So there is subjectivity. Scriptures are a very objective thing. Very clear. If we will study God's Word, we will know the doctrine, we will understand how He functions, how He works, what's important to Him, all of these things. We'll see Jesus for who He is. But Jesus is also to be experienced. It's not an either or, it's both. We need the Word because the Word does ground us and give us truth and help us understand the experiences. But to know the love of Christ, you can, Cheryl can, you know, we have this funny thing we do every now and then where we say, make an acrostic with my name. Cheryl, make an acrostic with my name. Rick is radical. Rick is incredible. A crusade. I, you know, I mean, you can, and, and we always were kidding with each other when we do that. Make an acrostic with my name. You know, we make those goo-goo eyes and just to be dumb. Why am I telling you this at all? Oh, because, because, because you cannot define my relationship with Cheryl in words. You do not know Cheryl like I know Cheryl. And you don't know me like she knows me. Again, some of you are going, but it is something experienced in relationship. You have to walk in relationship with Jesus to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. We don't want to be a bunch of theologians. We want to be theologically, doctrinally sound. Absolutely. Biblically correct. Yes. But we need to know Christ in a love that goes beyond all the scriptures we may memorize. And that only happens in a real relationship. And you all have relationships with people that you love and you can't really define it. But the love is there because it has been experienced. The love 
To be rooted and grounded in love. Not, not to be rooted and grounded in the love of self. Boy, I hate that. You've got to love yourself. You know what? You've got to love God. And love your neighbor. As yourself, people will say, I, I know, but if you're loving your neighbor and loving God, you're going to love yourself because you're going to be the kind of person you want to be around. I'm going to have to go back and listen to that. <laughs> but this culture preaches a selfish, self-centered love. That is what American culture is all about. You are number one. And you need to be fed. And your needs need to be met. And that is a whole load of bunk. The love of Christ, the breadth, the, the, the length, the height, the depth, the love of Christ is absolutely others-centered. Always is. And, and it surpasses knowledge, fills us up with the fullness of God. The love of Christ. And where was the love of Christ most profoundly unveiled? At the cross. At the cross is where we see the most beautiful love ever expressed in all of history. In the ground of Calvary, rooted on Skull Hill, grounded and rooted in love, in the love of Christ, completely self-sacrificial. And we walk with Jesus both in the rooting and grounding of the cross in the Scriptures by His Spirit, objectively, subjectively, in relationship. We walk with Jesus. We love Him. And we will begin to understand how high and how deep and how wide and how long is the love of Christ. Explain it to me. Well, it surpasses knowledge. Walk it out. The love of Jesus. There, there is so much that could be talked about in that prayer, verses 16 through 19. I'm not even going to do any more. You pray through it. You ask the Lord to show you and help you to understand what He's saying. It's just, it's just beautiful. Meditate on these words. And then in verse 20, finally, Paul says, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works, buckle up, within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And Paul has just made up another word. He does this from time to time when he has to express something and there's no Greek word to express it. He just takes two or three words and scrunches them all together and says, here you go. He did it with super apostles. We saw that before. There's not a Greek word. Prior to Paul, there's not a Greek word for super apostles. He pulled two together and said, the, the uber apostles. Yeah, that's what they are. And he does it here too. He makes up this word that we have translated exceedingly abundantly. It's one word in the Greek. Hooper et perisou. Hooper, which means um, beyond. Ek, which means out from. And then perisou, which means abundance. Scrunch it all together. Man, this is beyond going out from abundance. <laughs> you see, it's, it's super abundance. It's abundance beyond... I, I, there's no word for it. Let's make this word up. And that's what Paul does here. And throws out this thing about the exceeding abundance. Spurgeon defines it this way. He says, so abundantly that it exceeds measure and description. That is God's response, His reaction. Going super abundantly beyond all 
that we can ask or we can think, His capacity for giving so far exceeds His people's capacity for asking, there's not even a word for it. You can ask God all you want and you can't come close to what He can give. To what He wants to give. And someone might read this and go, Whoa. So how come I haven't gotten all that I've asked for? And James said in James 4, 2, You do not have because you do not ask. Well, I have asked. Okay, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. So that you may spend it on you. On your pleasures. So get this. This exceedingly abundant giver God, our Father, who wants to bless us with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, does it because He intends that we would become like Him. Meaning, meaning we will ask for what we can spend on others. And the more you ask for what you can spend on other people, the more God will pour out beyond anything you can even imagine. Can't even think of it. It's like Han Solo. In the first, the original, the classic Star Wars, the only one that really matters is the first three in the 70s. Han Solo's there with Luke Skywalker and they're in the control tower of the Death Star. And Luke is trying to convince Han to help him go save Princess Leia because he realizes the princess is there and he's in love with her. Right? He's a teenager. So he, he says to Han, he goes, if you were to rescue her, the reward would be... And Han goes, what? And Luke says, well, more wealth than you can imagine. Remember what Han Solo says? I don't know. I can imagine quite a bit. <laughs> you cannot imagine the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that God has in store for you if you will ask to spend it on others. And that's where Paul ends this chapter and I have to say to all this, no wonder God gets all the glory. Amen? Father, we thank You for Your Word tonight. Oh Lord, just now embed it in us. I pray for the enrichment of our lives through this, for the encouragement of the Scriptures. And again, Lord, as we pray before, for the washing of the water with the Word. Wash over us, encourage, strengthen, build up. And Father, work through us for the sake of other people. Even as You present Your grace in the heavenly places. In Jesus' name, Amen.